Welcome to episode three in the fourth season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and with me is our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the center. For today's show, we're going to deviate a bit from our regular habit of directly discussing events of the day or current Justice Center business. We'll focus on a book that John has finished reading recently, one that he told me has given him some inspiration and hope in these troubling times, when governments too routinely dismiss our rights and courts turn a blind eye to that dismissal. I'll let John introduce the book fully, but I just want to start with a question, and this sort of forces me to state the first part of the title, which I was going to let John read out. But here goes the title, Seven Absolute Rights. John, you have me at a disadvantage because I have not only not read the book, I had not heard of the book until about an hour ago. So I guess my opening question would be, what are absolute rights? Well, there's quite a few of them that are covered off by law professor Ryan Elford in a book written shortly before the COVID lockdowns. It's called Seven Absolute Rights, Recovering the Historical Foundations of Canada's Rule of Law. And it is a fantastic book where this uh, Canadian law prof uh, does a, a brilliant summary of five centuries of constitutional law uh, from the Magna Carta in 1215 through to the Act of Settlement in 1701. And in the intermediate period, we had the Petition of Right in 1627, an act abolishing the Star Chamber in 1640. We had the Habeas Corpus Act in 1679 the Bill of Rights in 1689, and then the Act of Settlement in 1701. And in those 500 years, we saw the uh, establishment and the triumph of the rule of law. Now, this is one of the principles mentioned in the very first words of the Charter. Uh, Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. And what the rule of law means is that we are governed by laws that are passed by parliament. So laws that are debated and discussed and criticized and hopefully amended and improved before they are voted upon, uh, not rushed through quickly. And so that everybody is governed by laws, not by the whims of the king. And so if you go back to pre-medieval times, uh, pre-1215 Magna Carta, the king had absolute power. If he didn't like something that you said or did, or if you were critical of him or his regime or his friends, it was absolute power. He could have you assassinated and he could uh, instruct uh, some of his officials to say, well, that, uh, that Kevin Steele fellow, don't like his podcasts. I'm a little fed up with, uh, with, with what he's saying. Uh, we've already killed John Carpe, but now uh, you know, we're going <laughs> to, <laughs> We're going to go after Kevin Steele. Oh, next. And then and then the henchmen uh they, they would they would find you, they would hunt you down and kill you just by something that the king said. Now he may have formalized this by, you know, signing uh a law that he had he himself had just created. I mean there might have been, might have been a minor formality. But what very often happened is uh the the, the king wouldn't necessarily have you assassinated, but he he would have you charged with treason. 
And again, this was not a written law. It wasn't like there was a criminal code that said, you know, a person commits uh, treason if he willfully blah, 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 with intention does blah, 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 that, you know, that is likely to endanger the security of the realm. And then, you know, security would be defined and there'd be different definitions. Then you'd have a law on the books as we do now. I have not looked at the criminal code recently, but there's, uh, you know, I'm sure there's provision for treason in there. You could, you could Google criminal code of Canada and look up treason and see, and, and there's probably a specific written definition. So it's a law that is written uh, that has been passed by Parliament, and uh, and that is enforced. So that's that's one aspect of the rule of law is is that we are governed by actual laws, not by the king waking up one morning and deciding that something is a crime, or waking up another morning and deciding that something else is no longer a crime. <clears throat> well, I understand when you said absolute power. Absolute power is enforced with the use of force. When you say absolute right. Does it mean that it is a right that is enforced through force? I mean, that, I guess that's what I meant by my question. What is an absolute right compared to, I suppose, an ordinary right? Is Does he actually get into explaining that in the book? Well, he does, and we'll we'll get to some of them. Uh, there's, okay. a half, there, there's a half dozen. The first one that emerged from Magna Carta is that we have an absolute right to not be subject. We, the people, citizens, or if you wish, subjects of the realm, subjects of the crown, citizens, people, we have a right to not be subjected to killings outside of the law. So th- and this is not about capital punishment. Uh, I have no idea what Ryan Alford thinks about capital punishment. He doesn't say that it's wrong. But if we do have capital punishment, then that's only administered, to use a gentle word, by virtue of the law. So there's a law on the books that says, uh, if you willfully, deliberately, intentionally kill another your, uh, human being, you know, premeditated, whatever, you, you can go to the criminal code, there's a definition of first degree murder, that he's not saying we have an absolute right to be free from capital punishment per se. He just doesn't talk, he doesn't touch the subject, right? But so even, but even if we have capital punishment, you have an absolute right to the, to not be killed outside of the law. Okay, so a jurisdiction okay. jurisdiction might have uh, capital punishment. Canada did until uh, Diefenbaker suspended it, and then it was formally abolished. I think in 1976 under uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. That that's a whole separate issue. Yeah, you know, sure. talk about that on a different podcast. But so extrajudicial killing is is killing outside of the law. So that with Magna Carta uh, curtailed the king's powers to simply execute whom he pleased. The other aspect of the rule of law, so firstly, uh, we are ruled by laws, written laws that are clear, that have uh, indirect consent to the people by way of their elected representatives, or in you know some jurisdictions, if you have direct democracy, citizens' initiative, you could have a law that the citizens themselves have have put forward and, and, and voted on. But in any event, we're ruled by laws, not by the king's whims. Okay, so we're limited. Yeah. And the second part is that the law applies to everybody, including the king. And so in modern language, that means the law also applies to government. So government is not above the law. Government cannot do what an ordinary citizen cannot do. So government cannot murder and and steal and rape and pillage and defraud, et cetera, et cetera. Now, of course, 
you know, government can be very oppressive in terms of its uh, excessive taxation, excessive regulations. But provided that that is pursuant to laws, then government is not above the law. It's acting pursuant to law. Now, to some people, these might sound like, you know, hair splitting or nitpicking, but it's not. The other thing that the kings did far more often than simply having somebody assassinated is to imprison somebody. And so in the early medieval times, even after Magna Carta for for many centuries, if the king didn't like what you said or what you did, if the king had a grudge against you, he would charge you with treason and uh, then you'd be locked up in prison and you could rot there for uh, at the king's pleasure and uh, that could be days, weeks, months, years. So you could be imprisoned and maybe die in prison. The, the, the conditions there were very foul at certain times in history. As many as 25% of prisoners died of typhus, uh, which apparently was very prevalent in um, a disease that was very prevalent in, in, in prisons. Uh, you could be tortured in prison. So before the Magna Carta, uh, English law consisted of whatever the king signed with his royal seal and the king ruled by force and will. Uh, this was another development in Magna Carta that, yes, you could be punished, but it would have to be pursuant to having broken a law, an actual law, uh, with an opportunity for trial by jury and a finding of guilt. And so this was the beginning of the idea that you you could not be arbitrarily punished. You could be punished even with, uh, you know, horrific death, you could be hanged, drawn and quartered, which is, you know, a bad way to go or burned alive. Uh, you know, it's all kinds of gruesome ways that uh, the English, as well as all the other ethnic groups thought of, of carrying out executions. But you couldn't be punished unless until there had been a, a due process and you had had an opportunity to defend yourself and uh, to uh, declare your innocence. So one of those rights, for example, the Habeas Corpus Act in 1679. And there were developments before this, this piece of legislation. All of this is a gradual process. And I encourage people to, to read the book, Seven Absolute Rights by Ryan Alford, if, if you want to get a better grasp of the details. I've read it once and I'm, I've taken notes, but I, um, and in one hour, we're not going to get through all the details. Habeas corpus is the right to appear before a judge after you've been imprisoned. So you can be charged with an offense that you've violated a law and you can be arrested and imprisoned. Okay. So far, so good. But you have a right to appear before the uh, a judge to declare your innocence and the government or the crown, uh, as it is in Canada, in the United States, would be, I guess would be called the state. The crown has to show cause as to why you should stay in prison. So again, it sounds like a technicality, but this made a huge difference from a situation where the king could order you to be arrested and thrown in prison and you kind of rot there forever, as opposed to, no, I, the, moment, the moment that I'm imprisoned, I have a right to appear before a judge and the government has an obligation to say what I am charged with. And the judge then uh, has to make a ruling. He might, he might rule against you and say, no, you got to stay in prison. So even today in Canada, depending on what you're charged with, if it's uh, armed robbery or, uh, you know, premeditated murder or maybe, you know, sexual abuse of children or whatever, if the crime is serious and the Crown believes that you are at a danger to the public uh, upon release, uh, the judge is not necessarily going to let you out of prison. Although for most uh, crimes, if a person is charged with, say, impaired driving, 
you know, they're going to, I guess, take a small risk and assume that you're <laughs> upset and embarrassed about having been charged with impaired driving. You're not going to go out and do it again the next day. Maybe you've learned your lesson. So that would be an example uh, with, with impaired driving. You might spend a night in a cell, but you are very likely going to be released the next day. Uh, for some crimes, you don't even go into a cell if you're charged with shoplifting. You know, Walmart will call the police and the police will charge you with shoplifting and arrest you, take you down to the station and fingerprint you, but you're going to be let go immediately. So habeas corpus is extremely important because it imposes a restriction on the absolute power of the king to uh, imprison you indefinitely, uh, right? The king now has to, or the king or his officials have to persuade the judge that you ought to stay in prison and you and hopefully your lawyer, if you have a lawyer, you have an opportunity to tell the judge why you should be released. So that's habeas corpus. That's one of the absolute rights, which Ryan Alford argues even in a state of emergency, even in a state of war, you, you have an absolute right to habeas corpus, which is a, a timely hearing before a judge after you've been imprisoned. He references the national emergency and the war situations because when the Nazis were perpetrating their atrocities during the Second World War, one of the arguments that the Nazi regime used to justify it is this, well, the, the country was in a state of total war the very nature and essence and soul and safety of the country was endangered by the war. Uh, Germany was at risk of being completely destroyed. So therefore, under those circumstances, we could just do whatever we want. And so Ryan Alfred says, if, if we don't uh, accept that argument, and we should not, if we do accept that argument, then the government can just declare an emergency and say, okay, well, we've got rights and freedoms, except not when there's an emergency. I don't know if that reminds you of anything in the last three Yeah, years. I was going to say, it sounds a little familiar. Uh, it's like, oh, of course you have charter rights and freedoms. Uh, just not now. There's an emergency on the go. Um, yeah. Ryan Elford talks about that. This book was published in 2020. And I am i haven't talked to Professor Alford, but I, I think it, it's pretty safe to assume that considering how long it takes to write a book, especially a very thorough, well-researched books, book like this with hundreds of footnotes in it. It's evident that Professor Alford has read dozens of books, if not hundreds of books in whole or in part to write this one, right? So very heavily uh, footnoted and, and, and referenced throughout. So I think it's a safe bet to say that you know, he would have completed the book sometime prior to March 2020 before we got all of these, these, uh, these COVID restrictions. I just want to point out in looking up the book, I did notice that he had published another book in 2017 with the title Permanent State of Emergency, Unchecked Executive Power and the Demise of the Rule of Law. Now, this was about the United States, it seems. And uh, of course, I haven't read it. I simply just looked at the little blurb here. It's about the United States and it was about the situation that occurred or developed after the terrorist 9-11 attack. He's pretty cynical in that one, and that's why I was uh, jumping ahead to well, 2020. But you know, I mean, is this a, is this a situation of you know Canada hold my beer kind of thing? Let's see what we can do here in a state of emergency. You well, know, he so. mentions he mentions in the book uh, briefly, and he he says the United States is not a rule of law state because the president mm. has executive authority. The president can sign a death warrant and order somebody executed. And that's not reviewable by, by courts. And he references a court case where a court said, yes, yeah. the president does have that power. He also says in the book that Canada in 2015 
joined the United Kingdom and the United States in participating in the killing of Canadians who had volunteered to go join ISIS. That was big in the news. I, I have the impression that they've regressed to, to being far less powerful. I don't know if they still control territory, but but for a while there, ISIS ruled large swaths of uh, Iraq and Syria and I think northern Saudi Arabia, and they had this, quite this big territory, and they were uh, absolutely vicious, uh, basically killing all non-Muslims, non-Muslims, as well as killing lots of Muslims who, who didn't agree with them and align with their thinking. They were, they were a bunch of terrorist murderers, and so you could see that, that there would be zero public sympathy for any Canadian that left Canada to go to the Middle East to volunteer to be with ISIS. I mean, obviously, there's going to be very little public sympathy from anybody, Muslim or non-Muslim, to, uh, f- for those individuals. But Ryan Alford argues that the United States and the United Kingdom and Canada were in violation of the rule of law and that they had repudiated centuries of uh, incremental growth in rights and freedoms by engaging in extrajudicial killings. So these killings where those Canadians who volunteered, you know, and Americans and Brits who volunteered to go to the Middle East to fight for ISIS, they were not charged with a crime. They were not arrested or detained. They were not provided an opportunity to defend themselves. Uh, Perhaps one of them went to the Middle East you know, was incorrectly believed to be going to the Middle East to fight for ISIS, but maybe it was going to the Middle East for a different reason. And that these people were targeted for uh, for killings without any due process, without any trial, without any finding of, of guilt. It's just like, well, you're a Canadian that's gone off to the Middle East to fight for ISIS, so we're going to kill you just like that. No process. So that's one absolute right out the window. Okay. So you said habeas corpus. Now are we going to talk about quarantine. That's two out the window. <laughs> well, so. I've, I've, I've heard, I've heard through the grapevine that uh, professor Alford was, uh, was not impressed and, and not in favor of the, uh, the restrictions on our charter rights and freedoms in the name of this virus, which was falsely claimed to be uh, as bad as the Spanish flu of 1918. I don't know his views in detail, Another development, uh, the Star Chamber was abolished in 1640. Prior to that, it, its its uh, its rights were, uh, its powers were already curtailed. So when we have these pieces of legislation, it wasn't like that was an overnight, but uh, the legislation more confirmed what had already slowly been developing in a certain direction for a half century or two centuries or three centuries. Now, the Star Chamber was a court of the king and apparently had stars painted on the ceiling. I've not researched that point. And the king appointed his favorites to be in charge of that court. And uh, the king also, pre-Magna Carta times uh, and, and thereafter, insisted that the ordinary courts of the land could not have authority or jurisdiction over the king. And so this is quite uh, significant because today in Canada, uh, the rule of law means that you or I and the Justice Center has sued the government <laughs> many times. And it's in the, you know, the Supreme Court of BC or the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench, as it was, or now the Alberta Court of King's Bench and the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, et cetera, et cetera. The language on the pleadings today, because we are a constitutional monarchy, so in legal terms, the government is known as 
His Majesty the King in right of Canada, His Majesty the King in right of Alberta. And so when the Justice Center is taking the government to court, if you look up these uh, court documents on our website, uh, you, you won't see Alberta government, but it'll be, well, most of these are filed when Queen Elizabeth, may she rest in peace, was, was still alive. So the court documents will say, the Queen in right of Alberta, and that's the defendant, right? So, but this, this dates back to the medieval times so that the king himself could be sued and was subject to the ordinary courts. And that's, that's a very important development. So when the Star Chamber was abolished, it's this special court over which the king had uh, extra control, more so than what he did. He gradually lost control over the other courts. That took centuries. It was not overnight that the king suddenly, you know, uh, uh, lost his ability to put some pressure on judges. And, and you know, the Magna Carta in 1215 did not change things overnight. Uh, but you had this gradual change from where the king, if he didn't like a judge's decision, maybe he, he probably wouldn't order the judge executed, but he would just say, uh, okay, you're fired. I'm removing you from the bench. Or, oh, you know what? I'm informing you. I'm transferring you to a different court. And, you know, maybe a less prestigious one or maybe a court that uh, the king figured that that judge was going to cause less problems for the king. So the, the judicial independence grew over centuries from a place where the king exercised a great deal of influence. He might not use it all the time. And if there's two peasants fighting over, you know, a stolen pig or something, the king probably wouldn't interfere. But if it was constitutional litigation that was, you know, challenging the king's right to tax, or if, if it was something political or something that the king perceived as a threat, uh, the king would certainly not hesitate to uh, call a meeting of the judges. This is one of the, uh, one of the stories told in Ryan Alford's book, where at, at one point the king was very upset with the judges who were not doing what he wanted, and he, uh, he, he called a meeting. <laughs> and in those days, you didn't really have the freedom to say, ah, no, thanks. I'm not interested. <laughs> he just right. got into this rant and he terrorized the judges and, and all but one fell to their knees and pleaded for mercy. But Edward Koch, who is a real hero in, uh, in, in the history, he said, uh, I, I will continue to rule uh, on matters uh, as in a manner appropriate to a judge. So he did attend the meeting, but he did not, he had the courage to not get down on his knees and beg. Um, he was removed from the bench entirely by the king. And yeah. he was told. <laughs> What's next? <laughs> Andy lost his head? No. No. Okay. No, he okay. was, uh, I think the king said, uh, spend your retirement maybe uh, writing some law books or something, okay. uh, which which he did. And he, he wrote these law books that became very influential and were often cited by um, by, by British courts o- over the centuries. So, so that was a big development. Uh, an act abolishing the Star Chamber solidified that the king can be sued and that the king is accountable to the courts and that the government is is required to behave in appropriate fashion. And when it does not, you can challenge the government's conduct in court. So that was significant. One of the things that I find encouraging about the book is just uh, being reminded, and I've, I've, of course, I've read about these various developments, you know, from time to time over the past 20, 30 years. But this is, it's really good to reread it, uh, to refamiliarize yourself and, and you learn new things. It's encouraging to think that it took, it took about 500 years from Magna Carta 1215 to the Act of Settlement in 1701, just shy of 500 years 
to achieve the acquisition of these absolute rights, such as uh, not being tortured, not being locked up in prison indefinitely, not being subjected to assassinations. This is encouraging why? (laughs) 500 years? Why is that encouraging? Because it shows that change is not overnight, and it is a source of inspiration that, that people had to fight for a long time to get these rights. Maybe encouragement's not the right word, but I think it's an important reminder that okay. um, you know people looking for overnight solutions to the restoration of the rights and freedoms that we lost in March of 2020 uh, with, with the onslaught of the, you know, the COVID restrictions if you think we're going to get our freedoms back in a day or a week or a month, you're going to get so discouraged so quickly, you're going to give up and quit. Now, I hope it's going to take less than 500 years to win these freedoms back. It's it's inspirational in the sense that the English fought for 500 years to get, uh, and there were reversals and and setbacks. For example, James I, who ruled from 1603 to 1625. So this is 400 years after Magna Carta. So, Many of these rights and freedoms had been entrenched and developed, but you have the you have the pushback. So he was a, he was a strong believer in uh, the divine right of kings and the absolute power of kings, and uh, the way that he put it once is he said, "The king is lex loquens, a living, speaking, acting law," and so the king is the law. We saw this from Louis the Fourteenth in France. Moi, je suis le roi. Me, I'm the king, and and, uh, the, and and the king is the law. It, it sounds foreign to us, but in the latter part of the podcast, we'll get to how we've regressed, because I think the chief medical officers and premiers and the prime minister and Theresa Tam, to a certain degree and in many ways, turned themselves into absolute monarchs who could just uh, make laws on a whim make an announcement at a news conference and say, here's the new law because I woke up this morning and I felt extra scared. And so I thought I'd, you know, push my uh, unscientific garbage on the entire populace. And so there's no legislative input. There's no legislative accountability. There's no consent. There's no due process. There's no opportunity to ask questions of these tyrants as to what is their justification. There's no accountability. They don't have to answer questions from the MPs or from their provincial MPP, MLA, what have you. So we'll get into that a bit later. So Charles I, uh, who was the son of James I, um, ended up getting executed because now he he developed a clever argument, and we, we've seen this in the last three years. He generally agreed that, yes, 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 there's all these restrictions on the absolute power of, of the king, except not when there's an emergency. When there's special circumstances, then the king still possesses these uh, absolute powers to defend the common good. And so here Ryan Alford is saying, well, no, these are absolute rights. Again, to not be assassinated, uh, tortured, thrown in prison without an opportunity to appear before a judge. The principle of no taxation without representation uh, emerged in these 500 years. The various kings of England loved uh, waging war on France. And so they always had their armies in France and they often ran short on money. And so over time, the people got so fed up with this that a new and when the when the king tried to extract money from people without parliament, this led to a constitutional crisis from which emerged uh, the principle that taxes can only be levied by parliament, not by the king. 
which is extremely important because then again, you have that public accountability and public input. It doesn't mean that parliament will always be wise and, and will always keep taxes low, but at least you have that safeguard that it is the, the representatives of the people through a legislative process where there's debate and where there's criticism and proposals and counterproposals. Uh, through that process, you are less likely to see the people oppressed than if you've got a uh, you know king or in today's equivalent a prime minister or premier uh, with these unilateral powers to do whatever he wants. Would that be enumerated amongst the absolute rights, the no taxation without representation? I don't think it's one of the. I don't think it's one of the seven that he lists. The seven absolute rights are the right not to be subjected to extrajudicial killing, the right not to be subjected to emergency measures that lack constitutional justification, the right not to be tortured, the right not to be subjected to arbitrary detention, the right not to be subjected to cruel and unusual punishment or excessive bail, the right of parliamentarians not to be punished for what is said in the course of parliamentary proceedings, and the right to be tried by an impartial judge who is a member of an independent judiciary. So those, those seven rights are discussed throughout the book. And in various chapters, you may be talking about two or three rights because it was such a development that at a particular moment in history uh, might be the initial beginning of one of those rights and the further solidification of another one of those rights and the final confirmation of another one of those rights. So those seven rights over 500 years were slowly developed and um, used to be taught in law schools, except sadly, uh, the, the legal profession in the past half century has moved away from, it used to be a mandatory in law school that you would study British history, British constitutional history, the development of the common law, the development of these rights. And there's a big difference that Professor Alford uh, points to between understanding that these substantive rights, which are not given or granted by the king, that they are inherent rights or natural rights, right? It's a very different understanding. Some people believe that we get our rights from government, to which I say, if that's true, then if government grants you the rights to life and liberty and a fair trial and not being locked up uh, indefinitely or arbitrarily, et cetera, et cetera, if those rights are granted by government, then government can legitimately take them away which, of course, abs the absolutists on, on the, the people arguing for the absolute power of the king uh, said, well, well, yes, indeed, that's, that's exactly the point. Uh, it, it is the, the government that is supreme, and they grant these rights, and they can take them away. But the, the opposing view, which is the basis for our constitution, is that these are natural or inherent rights that we possess as individuals. They are not a gift from government. Now, what happened was that the study of constitutional history moved away from an understanding of inherent rights and understanding how they came about, typically through a crisis. There's, uh, you know, Charles I was beheaded. There, there, there was civil war in, in England. Even the Magna Carta was effectively was a peace treaty between the rebellious barons who disagreed and, and did not accept the rule of King John. And King John signed the document to make peace with the barons, and he agreed to uh, the, these rights. 
uh, Magna Carta was annulled by the Pope a few months later, but uh, it but it was brought back again and again, and there was these uh, various statutes over time that reconfirmed, reconfirmed, reconfirmed Magna Carta, even though the the very first document only lasted for a few months, right? But obviously, it, it had that weight and that force that uh, it, it did become part of the British Constitution. Now, the modern teaching of law in the past uh, and and currently is it's a very different approach. It is kind of a philosopher's approach where a philosopher thinks in his mind about what is true and what is right and what is good and what ought to exist and the way that ought to exist. And then philosophically, you can arrive at these rights. But Ryan Alfred says that we have a far better understanding if we know the history and where they came from and what the historical circumstances were. So it's not just an abstract concept that, you know, well, I just think it's really wrong that you should get locked up indefinitely and, and not be able to appear before a judge to, to plead your case and potentially get released. If you understand the history, you understand that this was customarily done by kings for many, many centuries, that they would lock up their opponents and have them rot in jail and possibly be tortured uh, until the king perhaps, you know, remembered and uh, had the person hauled out of prison again. And that out of that historical context, that these rights develop that way. And so he advocates, and I agree that uh, constitutional law should be taught in law school. Uh, When I went to law school at the University of Calgary from 1995 to 1998, we didn't learn any of this. It It was just the charter, the charter, the charter. But the charter itself says in section 26, that it is not the sole enumeration of rights. Section 26 says that the charter shall not be interpreted in a manner so as to negate the existence of other rights, which might not be enumerated. And um, furthermore, the charter is not the only constitutional document. The other one that's very significant is the Constitution Act 1867, which for older folks uh, used to be known as the British North America Act, passed by the British Parliament in 1867. And it says that Canada shall have a constitution similar in principle to the United Kingdom. And so Ryan Alford argues, and I think his, I think the law is, is on his side, I don't think you can seriously dispute this, that all of these uh, statutes, the, the Magna Carta, the Petition of Rights, the Habeas Corpus Act, the Bill of Rights, the Act of Settlement, the Act Abolishing the Star Chamber, all of these do form part of Canada's constitution, but they have been largely forgotten. And that's dangerous because what we've seen in the last three years is um, these mini monarchs where, you know, prime minister, premiers, and chief medical officers turn into pre-medieval kings and arbitrarily make up the law from day to day, from week to week. And in many cases, don't live by that law themselves. You know, we've seen the right. disgusting hypocrisy of, of Premier Kenny with his... Uh, flaunting the COVID rules uh, with his cabinet ministers having lunch at the Sky Palace when around the same time pastors are are in jail. Would you say that that is the main purpose of the book, is the argument for bringing back this type of education in law school? And the reason I ask that is, obviously, I I said I haven't read the book, but I am looking at the uh, table of contents here. And The epilogue is titled The Meaning of Constitutional History for Judges, Lawyers, and Students. And so that 
suggests to me that this is this book, while an entertaining history of the rights uh, and an enumeration of absolute rights, constitutes some kind of argument to go back to that kind of education. Do you think that's a, one of its main focuses here? He he says that uh, Professor Alfred says that quite clearly that we okay. we should reintroduce the teaching of constitutional history. Combined history and, and law together, right? That you, yeah. you you understand, you really understand what these legal rights are all about when you see the historical circumstances and events out of which they emerged. Not to mention the bloodshed. A lot, a lot of people shed their blood fighting for these kinds of rights, and it, it was it was in England that enough people were willing to risk their heads in publicly criticizing the absolute power of the king. It was, it was a dangerous thing to do. Okay. I'm just wondering then, if he makes this argument, who is he making the argument to? Is he making it to the society generally, or is he making it to some body that creates a curriculum for lawyers? I, you know, to me, this seems pretty self-evident. You know, you got to know your history in order to talk about what we're doing now, you know, the, but obviously – Somebody has made a change somewhere. You said it was like 50 years ago, and uh, I have no idea how that came about. So I'm just wondering, you know, is he making this argument to lawyers, or is he just making it generally to society that we must sort of advocate for this to happen in our law schools? Well, my guess would be both. I mean, if if mm -hmm. you want to make changes, then you want to have a the common man and the general public on side with it, and you want to have lawyers on side with it, and you want to have law professors on side with it, and you want to have politicians on side with it, and you want to have judges on side with it. So I, th this is pure speculation on my part, but my, my best guess is that the book is targeted at uh, Canadians in general and lawyers and judges and law faculties. And if, if you want to see change, First thing to do is you start to advocate for it and you start to educate people as to why the change is important. I, I found it very eye-opening, even though I'm already, you know, in, in favor of these these seven absolute rights, just found it very eye-opening to to get this historical summary of um and again, I should have learned this in law school, but the, this was not taught. It may have been mentioned uh in passing. Law school was not completely devoid of teaching about the rule of law. There's a great case, uh, apologies to listeners who've heard about it before, but uh, the case of Mr. Ron Corelli and uh, Quebec Premier Duplessis. And uh, the Premier uh, and acted like a pre-medieval king and arbitrarily used his power to take away the liquor license from Ron Corelli because he was really upset with Mr. Ron Corelli and didn't like him and wanted to punish him. And so in this case, which I think it was late 50s, early 60s, I don't have it in front of me, uh, but the Supreme Court of Canada decisively ruled in favor of Mr. Ron Corelli and against the Quebec Premier, and articulated many of the concepts. So I don't, I don't want to exaggerate and, and, and suggest that the rule of law is not taught at all in law school. Okay, yeah. Uh, many, many of these principles are in that leading case, Ron Corelli and Duplessis, which is still cited by courts today for its relevant principles about the the rule of law. So we were taught about the rule of law by virtue of this case. But I think apart apart from Ron Corelli versus Duplessis, I don't recall a lot a lot of other things being taught about the rule of law. Certainly not. Uh, we, we did not study the Magna Carta in, in any great detail. 
may have been referenced briefly in a paragraph or two. And uh, same goes for the, the Petition of Right, Habeas Corpus Act, Bill of Rights, Act of Settlement, uh, etc. We did not go through these or review them. And it's the charter that's become dominant. But the problem with the charter is Section 1 says that uh, the charter guarantees these rights, except if politicians take them away and a judge approves of the government's conduct, and then you don't have them. Whereas Ryan Alford is saying that, no, even in an emergency, you have the right not to be subjected to assassination and uh, the right to not be detained indefinitely and the other ones that are mentioned, that, that these are absolute. So who's right? Who's correct here? I mean, obviously, the charter is what we have now, and that's what everybody's relying on, which says the government can you know, override all our rights, and that's where we're living right now. Why... Should anybody listen to Ryan Elford other than, I guess, you and I would advocate for a free society? But, you know, uh, how about the government? Why would they adhere to it? Well, there's this temptation to this elitist thinking that uh, government is just so wise and we should. This is an issue today, right? Where we're, a lot of Canadians, you say, well, who supported lockdown measures? You say, why? Well, because, you know, the chief medical officer said at a news conference that uh, her laws and policies are very, very wise and necessary in saving lives. And and that's it. There's this deference to government. And I think deference to government is good up to a point. I mean, obviously, we would degenerate into considerable chaos, uh, which would be bad if everybody woke up tomorrow morning and decided not to obey laws. Uh, okay, that would be bad. However, as a student of history, you know, within living memory, we we had uh, we had Hitler and Stalin, and and after they were dead, we we've had Mao Zedong, we've had Pol Pot, we've had Idi Amin. Lord Acton said, "Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely." And uh, human beings are flawed; therefore, human beings are capable. Here's an argument I would make: human beings. Uh, we have a mixed human nature. We are capable of great good. We're also capable of great evil. So government, which is made up of people, is also capable of great good, but also capable of great evil. So, I mean, to me, it's just self-evident that we need to have these uh, restraints on government. And I think that if there's a recognition that we, the people, have inherent rights, and I would go beyond these seven. I, I think we have a natural right to be able to uh, speak freely, and not just for parliamentarians, right? Where Professor Alfred argues that this is an absolute constitutional right that people in Parliament can say whatever they want, uh, because kings of old heard about what went on in Parliament and had the habit of, you know, <laughs> imprisoning, imprisoning and torturing parliamentarians who said things in Parliament that the, uh, that the king disagreed with. So there again, from history, you have this emergence that in Parliament, you have absolute immunity to say whatever you want. But I think it extends further to, to all people that neither you nor the government has a right to control my vocal cords or to you know, prevent me from practicing my faith or living my life according to my conscience or to associating freely with other people or not associating with people as I please without duress or coercion or the threat of a thousand dollar fine for having Christmas dinner with my mother, th that sort of thing. And I think it's particularly relevant. Uh, it, it's that shift in the academy away from the idea of individuals possessing absolute rights towards this notion that rights come from government and government can take them away. And I think it's the latter that was dominant in the last three years. 
where the prime minister and the premiers had this pre-medieval uh, royal arrogance about them that they could just say, okay, you can't fly on an airplane or you, you can't hold the hand of, of your, your dying mom or your dying dad. Uh, you can't attend your grandmother's funeral. You, you, can't, you can't have Christmas dinner with your family. I mean, it's just sickening, disgusting abuse of power. And contrary to Canada's constitution, this was done without uh, the consent of the parliament or provincial legislature. And there's, right. there's a problem because you could argue, and I'd have to agree with you that, okay, John, you know, if, if the premier hadn't done it unilaterally, the provincial legislature might've committed the same violations of, of our rights and freedoms to which I would say, yes, that's possible. However, we would have at least had public debate and accountability because if you've got 87 MLAs in the Alberta legislature, you're going to have one or two or three or five or 20 who are going to ask some tough questions, you know, hopefully more than 10 or 20, and they're going to want to see the evidence. And if they're not persuaded by the evidence, they're not going to vote in favor of it, as opposed to this unilateral power exercised by the premier and the chief medical officer to wake up one morning and call a news conference and announce what the law is going to be uh, effective tomorrow morning. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, it went into the whole free speech aspect of it by the shutting down of dissent. I think that's when it really got painful. You know, you talked about with 87 MLAs debating it, at least we're going to hear the other side, but they shut that down entirely, you know, and I think that's probably what made us feel so helpless, I suppose. You know, I mean, when you look at what they enforce their their absolute power with, it's, you know, they use the power of the state, the monopoly on force that they have. We don't want to use force on the pushback. We want to know how to fight back, I guess. How how to fight back in a way uh, that is civilized, I guess. And that's where we're at right now, I think. You know, the frustration. We're in courts. Are we getting the recognition from the courts of the violation of our rights? We don't appear to be. How do we push back? I guess that's, you know, without uh, resorting to what the state does. Well, it's the same thing that that people have been doing over the last three years which is to exercise their freedoms of expression and talk to people and speak up and speak out and to associate uh, as we have and to, to obey unjust laws that, uh, that, that are utterly devoid of, of scientific credibility. Uh, we know this to be true because whenever you ask to see the science, you just get told to shut up and that, that you're not scientific the Alberta Health, Health Services website makes all kinds of assertions, and it's not footnoted. This book by Ryan Alford, he backs up everything he says with dozens, if I haven't counted the number of, of footnotes, but there's, there's hundreds of footnotes in the book where he backs it up. You go to a government website, and you're not going to see scientific studies and reports about how society-wide lockdowns have worked in the past. Oh, right, because there are no such studies. You're not going to see the studies on masks. You're not going to see, uh, you, you get this bald-faced claim that, that there is no treatment for COVID other than lockdowns and vaccinations. And you don't, no government website that I've seen will actually refute the studies that do exist that say that ivermectin does work. I'd have more respect for the government if they refuted and debunked those allegedly false studies. What the government does is they say, Oh no, no, there is no evidence <laughs> that 
<laughs> right. That that ivermectin is effective. When I mean, I I pers- I don't know that many people. I, I personally know so many people that were sick with COVID, and then they took ivermectin with vitamin C and vitamin D, and they they felt a whole lot better within hours in some cases, or within a day, they felt way better and and they got better. Now that's only anecdotal, but there are studies out there. So, but to answer your question, what do we do? And the court decisions to date have been far from desirable. They've been a huge disappointment. We continue to exercise our charter freedom of expression, our freedom of association, our freedom of peaceful assembly. And we continue to not comply with unjust laws that violate our charter rights and freedoms. And so and our side is winning because I frequently hear about people who say, well, I used to believe what the government said about lockdowns and vaccines, but I no longer believe that. And so you hear about people that are changing their mind and they're coming our way. When is the last time that the CBC ran a story about somebody who said, oh, I used to be really skeptical about lockdowns and vaccines, but now I've changed my mind and I believe the government and I can't wait to get my fourth booster. I don't know. I don't watch the CBC, so I can't say. <laughs> no, but, but any media. And here's, here's yeah. the thing. If there was somebody like that, the CBC would put that on the front page because they're, they're sure. a taxpayer-funded government propaganda machine. And if there was somebody that said, hey, I used to be, I used to be against lockdowns and, and vaccines and travel restrictions, but I've changed my mind, uh, you know, lock me down, inject me, and prevent me from traveling. If there was somebody like that, CBC and, and the other government-funded media, the Global Mail, the National Post, uh, the, the Global News, CTV, what have you, they would put that on the front page because it serves the government's narrative. And we never see that. So where is the movement? The movement is over to our side because we're winning converts, so to speak. Uh, the other side is not winning any. So freedom another, of speech is, pre- is pretty fundamental to this whole pushback, I guess. And the exercise but it's of not, free speech. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not really listed as an absolute right in that book except for parliamentarians in parliament, right? So, well, for that, for that, we have to go to the charter, right? So the charter, right, okay. some of the rights in the charter that are not amongst these seven absolute rights would be the ones that I mentioned, the uh, freedoms of conscience, religion, expression, association, and peaceful assembly. Those had not been formally recognized as constitutional rights or freedoms uh, in England by the year 1700. Oh, I see. Okay. Now I got it. Okay, Penny. So those are later developments. Another really positive development that encourages me is that um, the uh, I just saw a Fraser Institute report. This was uh, released on January nineteenth, and uh, two new essays analyzing government governmental response to COVID. Uh, the first essay uh, argues that government lockdowns did little to reduce COVID deaths, yet imposed widespread economic and social costs including an increase in deaths not directly linked to COVID. According to estimates, and I know the Fraser Institute, uh, like the Justice Center, uses government documents and government data. So uh, according to the government data, lockdowns reduced COVID deaths by 3.2%, but they also discouraged people from getting regular medical checkups and preventative screenings, resulting in higher death rates from other illnesses. And the Justice Center has exposed that as well with... with um, over a half a million diagnostic procedures canceled by chief medical officers who are supposed to be looking after public health and over 200,000 medically necessary surgeries and procedures canceled in Canada in 2020. And so 
according to the data, Fraser Institute said that if lockdowns reduced deaths by 3.2%, they saved 27,000 lives, but helped cause 171,000 excess deaths. Uh, the second essay examines the behavior of governments who enacted and enforced policies they knew were ineffective or misguided or both. Now, to my knowledge, this is the first time that the Fraser Institute has done public policy work on lockdown policies, and I stand to be corrected. And this is encouraging to see uh, yet another think tank that is is analyzing the government data. We've already seen things coming out of the McDonald-Laurier Institute and the Frontier Center for Public Policy. And again, I stand to be corrected. My apologies to the Fraser Institute if, if this is not the first time, but it's the first time that I'm aware of that the Fraser Institute has uh, entered into this realm. And their studies and reports are always very thoughtful, very careful, very rigorous and very nuanced. And so visit the Fraser Institute's website to read those reports. Okay. So are we winning? Absolutely. Are we right? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) We are, we are winning. I just, I hope it'll take, I hope it'll take less than, uh, less than 500 years. And I'm sure it'll take less than 500 years. It will take a lot of, of hard work and we can be inspired by the courage shown by Englishmen over the centuries uh, fighting for these absolute rights that protect individuals. They, uh, they suffered torture and, and uh, suffered imprisonment and suffered uh, executions. Not always the uh, quick get your head chopped off, but, but very painful methods as well. And so people shed their blood for having a civilized society where citizens enjoy these rights and freedoms in the same way that far more recently uh, Canadian soldiers fought to defeat the regimes of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan and defend Western civilization. And what these soldiers were going to war for was the rule of law and the absolute rights and the other rights and freedoms uh, that, that we enjoy today. So if our ancestors were willing to suffer imprisonment and torture and death, then we at least should be willing to suffer some inconvenience and, uh, you know, rejection and not getting invited to Christmas dinner. Uh, And we should sacrifice financially. I mean, our freedom is worth sacrificing for. There are good groups to give money to. I always encourage people to give to the the Justice Center, of course, and we're going to send out our tax receipts in uh, in February to all of the good people that uh, supported our work in 2022 and also give to other groups and organizations that are doing good work to defend our freedoms and to defend the free society and to defend human dignity. And that can include uh, registered charities like the McDonald Laurier Institute, uh, Frontier Center, the Fraser Institute. Uh, it can include political candidates and parties. Uh, Some of them are worth supporting. And it can include all kinds of grassroots organizations who will not give you a tax receipts, but you should uh, give them some money nonetheless. And do not underestimate the power of $100 a month or $10 a month. I know, speaking for the Justice Center, that that a a big chunk of our funding uh, comes in the form of donations of $100 a year or less. That is, I I think, roughly a fifth of our total funding, which is not a small percentage. So, you know, large or small here, what can you do? You can give money to organizations that are doing the important work. 
And to Ryan Alford, I guess we can uh, say that we would encourage him to write a book on this side of the pandemic now. I hope he will. Yeah, it would be nice to see a follow-up. Well, it's great. Thanks, John, for bringing this book to our attention. I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll call an end to episode three in the fourth season. Thanks so much for being here, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Have a great week, Kevin, and all of our listeners. Have a great week. 